صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Joining me is Rob. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Nasser. I'm uh, I'm wondering whether you're happy with what's happened in Australia over the last week or so, being the election. We're very happy with the result. Very <laughs> happy that a couple of our nemesis have been shown the door by wonderful Australians who've kicked out some terrible politicians. Don't forget, listeners, Radiothon, 18th of June. Rob and I will be live in the studio taking your calls, so make sure you call in, donate, show your support to 3CR and also Palestine Remembered. Today, we're joined from Washington by a fantastic supporter of Palestinian rights and justice, Josh Rubner, who's an adjunct lecturer in justice and peace studies at Georgetown University in Washington. He's also pursuing a PhD in Palestine studies at the University of Exeter's European Centre for Palestinian Studies. He's the author of two books, Shattered Hopes, Obama's failure to broker Israeli-Palestinian peace and Israel democracy or apartheid state. He founded Jews for Peace in Palestine and Israel and was a policy director for US Campaign for Palestinian Rights and an analyst in the Middle East Affairs at the Congressional Research Service. A fantastic resume and bio, Josh. Good morning and welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Nasser. It makes you sound very old, that lead-in, but as we know, you're not, and I'm still surprised. You're much younger than your resume suggests. Josh, tell us a little bit about your journey to your position on Palestine today. I guess to answer that question, I have to go back in history a bit. My grandparents on my father's side fled Nazi Germany in the 1930s and found refuge in Palestine and, and lived there for quite some time where my dad was born. Although I was born here in the United States, I've had a, a deep connection to the issue of, of Palestine, Israel uh, since, since I was born. And I came of age during the height of the Oslo process when a lot of people, including myself, were very optimistic that peace was just around the corner. The peace process was something that I supported in the initial days. I thought that the dialogue between Israel and the PLO was something that was inherently positive and would lead to a just and lasting resolution. But as I understood the issue more and did my own studying and had my own experiences, I came to a deeper understanding that this so-called peace process was really only designed to reinforce the status quo, which was Israel's control and domination and apartheid system over the Palestinian people. And to be honest, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult intellectual journey to go through because at that time, you didn't have broad diversity of organized Jewish groups that were speaking up on behalf of Palestinian rights as you do today. So it was, it was a much more lonely journey than, than it is today for the younger generation coming up who I think are, are getting it uh, at a much quicker rate than my older generation did. Josh, there's been some recent research that suggests that younger Jews, particularly in the United States, have a lesser connection to Israel. 
Is that the sense you're getting increasingly? I mean, that space that you left, it's getting far easier to leave now, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And when I was growing up and, and coming of age, it was it was a bit easier to be what we would call today a liberal Zionist. In other words, believing that dialogue and process could play itself out into some sort of resolution between Israel and the Palestinian people. But today, it's a much more stark choice where the notion of liberal Zionism is becoming increasingly um, difficult to, to maintain as, as an intellectual and ideological space. Either you support Israel's status quo of oppression of the Palestinian people, or you support Palestinian rights. And those who are trying to somehow uh, square the difference between the two are finding it more and more difficult to do so, especially as, as the fascist tendencies in Israeli society are becoming more and more evident for everyone to see every day, as we saw the other day with the flag march in Jerusalem and all of the disgusting genocidal chants that were issued by thousands of, of protesters. And for our listeners, May 29 is Flag Day, and it's when, sickeningly, the Israeli police force and army close down Jerusalem and they allow, you know, upwards of a few thousand, they've rabid, mis- I mean, just racist human beings to run through Jerusalem with flags shouting, death to Arabs, Muhammad is dead. And I saw some of it was Shireen is dead, talking about uh, Shireen Abu Akhla, who was assassinated a couple of weeks ago in Jenin. Not enough that 530 plus villages were demolished in the Nakba, not enough that 85% of the Palestinians were driven from their homes. It's almost, I don't like using these sorts of words, but it's they're almost like pogroms, like the start of, you're just waiting for somebody to start lighting houses on fire to drive people away. Well, it really, it really is that terrible. And I don't think that that's an overstatement to call it pogroms. And I think that if people had cell phones back in the 19th century and early 20th century, when those kind of events were taking place in Russia, we would see similar pictures to what we're seeing today out of Jerusalem. I mean, you have Israeli settlers attacking Palestinians uh, on a daily basis, you know, invading their villages, smashing their cars, trying to burn their houses, um, injuring and killing them. It's, it's just run amok. And as this Israeli commander recently stated a few days ago to Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, that there's no difference between the Israeli army and Israeli settlement and Israeli settlers, excuse me, they're one and the same. And I think that really is the ethos that is driving Israel. Israel has been taken over by the, the government, I should say, has been taken over by those who are really at the heart of this drive to colonize the Palestinian West Bank. And I think it's very analogous to what took place when France colonized Algeria, how the French settlers in Algeria were really calling the shots on behalf of the totality of the French government. And I think you see something similar happening today. And I think that, you know, it's making it much more easy for people to identify which side of this they're really on. Are you on the side of those who are trying to expel people from their homes, take over their land, shoot journalists in, in the head, or are you on the side of peace and justice? It's, it's really that simple. I mean, Israel's propaganda spends so much time trying to convince us that this is something that's too difficult for the lay person to understand. No, it's really simple. Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their home by Israel in 1948, and those who remained are just barely hanging on under this Israeli oppression, despite the steadfastness, despite the samud of the Palestinian people. So really, it's are you on the side of the colonizers or are you on the side of the colonized? It's really that simple.
I think we should also mention that there was an Israeli lawmaker last week was reminding the young Palestinians that if they raised the Palestinian flag, that they should speak to their parents and the elder generation about the Nakba, which obviously is the catastrophe and the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And he tells them this a week before they allow this horrific march through the Muslim quarters of the old city. It just shows the disparity between the power, you know, the, the cultural positions and the colonizer against the oppressor. It's just so, so clear. No doubt. And I think what's tripped up a lot of people in their understanding over the past 30 years is this so-called peace process. And that's in air quotes, because it's created in the minds of a lot of people, a certain symmetry and balance between the two sides, because Israel can point to the establishment of the Palestinian authority and act as if that Palestinian authority actually had any authority when in fact, of course it doesn't, it's under Israel's thumb. Uh, and Israel controls whatever Palestinians do, regardless of whether they fall under the jurisdiction of, of the PA. But it has created in the minds of a lot of people this false understanding that this is a symmetrical battle or conflict between two sides, where in reality, it is one of oppressor versus oppressed, colonizer versus colonized. And I think that those scales are being stripped from the eyes of many people, you know, especially over the last several years as the Israeli brutality and its documentation through social media, you know, has really expanded to a considerable degree. And it's really forcing people to decide which side of this issue they're on. You spoke about liberal Zionism and, you know, we, we know well that liberal Zionism is just somebody who's not quite there yet. Peter Beinhardt come out, Zionist Jewish establishment family, and he's come out now as a supporter of the one state. So he's gone, gone complete full circle. We're actually seeing so much more activism from, from a progressive Jewish voice. Well, I think most of it can be explained in terms of generational shifts. Within the United States, you see an overwhelming shift in the way that people view the Israeli-Palestinian issue based on the generation that they are of. So poll after poll has confirmed this over, over the past several years, that the older you are, the more likely you'll be to be supportive of Israel. And the younger you are, the more likely you'll be to be supportive of the Palestinian people. And so I think it's that generational divide that's really driving things more than anything else. I'm not sure that Jewish, young Jewish Americans are necessarily more pro-Palestinian than, than their non-Jewish peers in the United States. I think it's just part of this generational drift where people who are growing up with social media as, as part of their lived experience, they just see a whole different side of things that people in older generations just weren't exposed to. And the further we get from the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust, uh, the, the, more, the, the more it's easy for people not to accept that as a so-called justification for Israel's oppression of the Palestinians. We're joined by Josh Rubner joining us from Washington. Josh, you wrote a recent article and something caught my eye. Five things the United States knew about the Nakba as it unfolded. Now, a link to this will be in the podcast. So make sure you go through to that and you'll also get a link to Josh's website as well. Josh, tell us about that article. Palestinians have been maligned and dismissed as uh, anti-Semites for suggesting many truths about the state of Israel, but academics like yourself are delving into the archives and exposing the truth. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I didn't know what I would find when I went into the archives. This was part of the PhD research that I'm doing right now, which is looking at how the United States related to the question of Palestinian self-determination. Originally, I was going to look from between World War I until the end of the Truman administration. But as I started to dive into the archives and really dig in, to the Truman administration, I realized that so, so much uh, was recorded that has not been um, explicated by historians yet. And I'm really surprised because these documents have been declassified for more than 40 years and have just been sitting there in the National Archives for anyone to see. And they document quite clearly that the United States knew exactly the scope and the gravity and the magnitude of Israel's dispossession of the Palestinian people in real time, beginning at the end of 1947 and going all the way through the early 1950s. So for example, there's this one cable that I quote in the article that you mentioned, Nasser, from James McDonald, who was the first US ambassador to Israel. And he's actually referred to by some others in the uh, US State Department as a quote unquote professional Zionist. Uh, which he was. He was a member of the Anglo-American Commission in 1946. Uh, he was very, very sympathetic to Zionism, as were a lot of Christians in the aftermath of World War II who felt it was a way to, uh, you know, expiate the sins of the, of the Holocaust. So after this commission that he was on in 1946, he went around the Jewish lecture circuit in the United States uh, supporting Zionism, and he was named the first ambassador to Israel. And even someone as sympathetic as, uh, to Zionism as James McDonald was, wrote back to the Department of State that the Palestinian refugee crisis was of, quote, catastrophic proportions. And of course, Nakba in Arabic means catastrophe in English. So in real time, you had U.S. diplomats were sympathetic to Zionism, reporting back to Washington, D.C. about just how grave this situation was. I'll give you another example in a, in a cable that I didn't quote from in that, in that article that I found very, very poignant was some visits that were made by U.S. diplomats from the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem in 1948. They went to Ramallah today in the West Bank. And they saw all of these thousands and thousands of Palestinian refugees who were sleeping out in the open. They were sleeping under olive trees because in other reports that were in the archives, the refugees talked about how they were forced to flee from their homes at gunpoint by Israeli soldiers and weren't allowed to take any possessions with them. And so you have all of these very poignant cables coming back to Washington, D.C., stating that these tens of thousands of refugees didn't have access to food, didn't have access to clean water, didn't have access to even the most rudimentary shelter, like tents or anything, had no access to doctors or healthcare or anything like that. And they estimated that tens of thousands, if not 100,000 refugees would die if some drastic action weren't taken. So the United States knew quite well what was unfolding in 1948. And President Truman himself said that he was quote unquote disgusted by Israel's failure to repatriate these Palestinian refugees who were driven from their homes. He thought about doing something, he thought about imposing sanctions, but at the end of the day, he didn't wanna use the political capital that
that would be entailed to actually impose those sanctions. And so he went through with admitting Israel to the UN as a member state. He went through with providing Israel a very badly needed $100 million export-import bank loan to help finance the fruits of its dispossession of the Palestinian people. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned in, in that regard, because I see a lot of parallels, for example, between the Truman administration and the Obama administration, for example. Both knew exactly what was going on and both had some good thoughts as to what should be done to promote justice and peace, but neither was willing to spend any political capital whatsoever to really fundamentally challenge Israel. So what I found in the archives so far is both an admission that the United States knew exactly what was taking place and also degree of culpability and responsibility. Because if you know, that's even worse than if you're ignorant. If you know, you have a responsibility to rectify it. So I say, but by knowing about it and also then funding to help it is completely complicit. Yeah, it's interesting, Robert, you know, in, in the beginning. So one of the things that I'm trying to challenge in, in the historical work that I'm doing is, is a very presentist view of the situation. A lot of historians get, get into a presentist viewpoint, meaning that they view the present day and project it backwards into the past and say, this is how it is today, so this is how it always was. And that's really not the case when it comes to U.S. policy toward Israel. This type of uh, lockstep, uh, unconditional support that we see from most members of Congress and almost all presidential administrations, that wasn't always the case. And in fact, there were presidents who quite significantly challenged Israel. And Israel was actually not a major recipient of U.S. assistance until the 1960s. Just because U.S. policy looks the way it looks today, which is full status quo support for Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people. That's definitely not always how it was, uh, historically speaking. So in that respect, I view some of this historical research that I'm doing as being optimistic in nature, because if we can recover these voices that spoke out in support of Palestinian self-determination, you know, we can realize that it was done once and it can be done again. And it is being done again. You start off your article noting that 22 Republican representatives led by Doug Lamborn of Colorado sent a letter to the president urging him to erase Palestinian refugees and their rights as a matter of US policy. A super PAC has been formed to get rid of Rashida Tlaib. I mean, what's next? Uh, yes, that's true. There is. And they've committed a million dollars to try to defeat her in, in her primary this year. But, you know, we have, I don't know if this is the case in Australia as well, but in, in this country, especially within political circles and especially within Washington, D.C., we have pervasive Nakba denial. We have a fundamental unwillingness by people to confront the fact that Israel today exists as a majority Jewish state for one reason only, and that's because of the ethnic cleansing of 1948 and the refusal to allow Palestinian refugees to return in violation of international law. And without being willing to recognize this fundamental reality of how Israel came to be, we have a wrong analysis of the situation. And a wrong analysis of the situation leads to incorrect analyses about how to resolve this issue. The issue has to go back to 1948. 1948 not only has to be recognized, but Palestinians have to be compensated in the form, not just of material compensation, but for the actual physical return of those refugees and their descendants 
who desire to go back. There's no other conceivable way that justice can be brought to the situation. And I think we've come full circle in a lot of ways. The idea of partitioning Palestine has been the ideal mode of resolving the competing claims between the, the colonizing Zionist movement and Palestinian nationalism amongst decision makers since 1947. You could go back even further to the Peel Commission in the 1930s if you want, but it really gained currency in the late 1940s. So we've had 75 years of failed attempts to try to cut the baby in two, if, if you will, the expression. And, you know, I think back to the parable from King Solomon, where two mothers are arguing before him as a judge, both claiming the child as a baby. And he says, okay, sp split the baby in two and you can both have half. And the one who's not the real mother says, okay, that sounds like a fair deal. And the one who's the real mother says, no, I want to accept that partition. So this is the idea. We've been trying to partition unjustly Palestine for 74 years against the wishes of the majority of the indigenous population of the country. And it's important to remember that when the UN recommended partition in 1947. First of all, it was only a recommendation. It didn't have the sanction of the Security Council. It didn't have the color of international law. It was just a suggestion that was only supposed to be uh, implemented if both sides agreed to it, which obviously the Palestinians didn't. But the interesting thing about the partition resolution that a lot of people don't realize is that even within the borders of the Jewish state that was marked out and delineated uh, by the UN in 1947, there was going to be a tiny bare majority of people who were Jewish. It was 498,000 Jewish people versus 497,000 indigenous Palestinians. This is just within the so-called the proposed borders of the Jewish state, right? So was that any kind of recipe for not leading to ethnic cleansing? Of course, this was designed to lead to ethnic cleansing. You say, okay, you can establish a Jewish state on more than half of Palestine, where Jews only constitute one third of the population and own only 7% of the land. Of course, that's setting things up for ethnic cleansing. And the US knew this in advance. They knew that the partition plan could not be implemented except through the use of force. And the force would be done through first Zionist militias and then through the state of Israel. The U.S. knew that Israel would not be content with the borders that were drawn up and would not be content with having just a bare majority of Jewish people within this state. So the recipe for Israel's ethnic cleansing was very, very clearly laid out with this very foolish partition plan that was adopted by the UN in 1947. And it's time to say that, that the idea of partitioning Palestine has failed. There's today a one-state apartheid reality in all of historic Palestine between the river and the sea. And it has been a one-state apartheid reality now for 55 years. We're coming up on the 55th anniversary of the Nexa, the, the reverse, the setback where Israel occupied the Palestinian West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967. Israel's exercise of one-state apartheid reality over the entirety, the totality of historic Palestine, longer than Israel existed in its pre-1967 borders. So this is the reality that policymakers are not reckoning with. It's a one-state apartheid reality. Either you can have a continuing unjust situation of one state apartheid rule, or you can have a just solution that is based on one state democracy and equality and all of the 
liberal values that democracies claim to stand for. You've written a lot about the US, the amount of money that they've given, military aid to Israel. Back in 2010, you were discussing how you know the Palestinians paradoxically will have to be expected to negotiate statehood with Israel, while Israel, with the full support of America in relation to money and military aid, will continue eating up Palestine. How do we change that? Is that the only way that we can halt Israel? That's a good question, Robert. I don't know if it's the only way, but I think it's a it's a crucial way. I mean, the United States needs to end its complicity in Israel's human rights atrocities against the Palestinian people. Nasser, you mentioned the journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. She was killed with a Ruger rifle that was made in Connecticut in the United States that was most likely paid for by our taxpayer dollars as, as U.S. citizens. You know, we provide Israel with the fighter jets, with the attack helicopter gunships, with the missiles, with the tanks, with the guns, with the ammo, with the jeeps, with every conceivable piece of equipment that the Israeli military uses on a daily basis to oppress the Palestinian people. So of course we need to end that, right? If we have any pretension as a country of trying to broker a just and lasting resolution, you can't arm a belligerent and then turn around and say that I'm helping to broker peace. What kind of nonsense is that? Up until the Russian invasion and war against Ukraine, the U.S. provided more weapons to Israel than all other countries in the world combined. That's at the expense of the U.S. taxpayer. It provides a lot more to those who are willing to pay for it. You know, in previous research that I've done, I've found that there have been hundreds of different kinds of weapons that have been provided, many of which can be linked directly to atrocities committed by Israel. And Israel's never been held accountable for that. And it's not like we don't have laws against that here in the United States. We have good laws. They're great on paper. They say that no country can get any form of U.S. assistance if they commit systematic human rights abuse. The question is, why is that not being implemented? Fortunately, we have more and more members of Congress who are beginning to raise questions and beginning to speak out. So earlier this week, for example, we had 15 members of Congress speak out against Israel's attempt to ethnically cleanse more than 1,000 Palestinians from the Masafar Yatta region in the South Hebron Hills. And they said, if Israel does this, it'll be a war crime. And we have to look at our laws to see if any laws are violated if Israel does this, with the understanding that Israel should be held accountable for violations of those laws. But you know, a law on the book is nothing if it's not implemented. I've also written about, you know, America's had the constitutional right to boycott Israel. Yet there's a law coming out that's the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. So again, they're going against their own home laws in America to protect Israel. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, there's a few different strands to that, Robert. There have been numerous bills introduced at the state and the federal level in the United States that have been designed to punish those who boycott for Palestinian rights. The most egregious one was something that was introduced in Congress, actually. It was called the Israel Anti-Boycott Act. And it actually proposed, get this, imprisoning people for 20 years if they provide information to the UN or to the European Union that would result in a settlement product being boycotted. 20 years prison. Now this was defeated, thankfully, but other laws that have passed on the state level 
have uh, made people sign a loyalty contract in order to do business with the state. We actually had Abby Martin on not long ago who fought that and won, which was, uh, which was pretty cool. That's right. And there have been uh, a number of people who have fought back against these unconstitutional laws and have prevailed in courts. Yeah. But, you know, we just got through the trauma in the United States of four years of the Trump administration. <laughs> And he appointed more federal judges than any other president in recent history. And the people who he appointed to federal judgeships are gonna be around for many, many decades. And you know, we may not get so lucky in the future. We may get laws that are brought before judges that were appointed by people like him yeah. and, and, and not have our constitutional rights sustained. And it's, it's a canary in the coal mine the issue of Palestine here in the United States because the attempt to crack down on free speech for Palestinian rights, for organizing and for boycotting is being uh, transferred wholesale to the attempt to try to stop, you know, divestment against big oil or big tobacco or big pharma. You know, these, these types of laws have been used as a template to try to crack down on Americans' fundamental human uh, the right to freedom of expression in so many different fields. We'll have to leave it there. We've we've gone well over time. But you've got some fantastic stuff, and what and what we will do is we'll put your um your links because I was reading those in the last few days. You got some fantastic stuff there. You cover everything. Thank you. So thanks so much for coming on. It's been very uh, it's been eye opening. Thank you so much for having me, Robert and Nasser. Appreciate it. And we'll have you on again for sure. A real pleasure, Josh. Don't forget, listeners, June 18, Rob and I will be live in the studio for Radiothon. Make sure you support 3CR and Palestine Remembered. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.